today's market, people are worried in rentals anyway, less about square footage total. They're worried more about how many people can I kind of squeeze into this house. Mm-hmm. And that, that'll get you better returns. Best ever listeners, before today's episode, I want to invite you to join us in Keystone, Colorado, February 20th through 22nd. It is the 2020 Best Ever Conference. And not only do I want to invite you to join us, I want to invite you to earn 15% for every ticket that you're responsible for selling should you join as an affiliate for the conference. Great way to earn money. And also, if you're planning on attending, great way to pay for your ticket, essentially. You get enough sales. So you can go to BEC20.com. And in the top left corner, it says earn 15% as an affiliate. You can click that, join the affiliate program, and you got all the resources that you need to share the good word about the best ever conference in Keystone, Colorado. And we will be talking more about this on future episodes. But for now, go check out BEC20.com and that affiliate page. You can earn 15% as an affiliate, and we will see you in Keystone, Colorado. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff. What's us today, Dave Friedman. How you doing, Dave? Awesome. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm glad to hear that, and it is my pleasure a little bit about Dave. He founded Boston Logic, now called Property Base, in 2004, grew it to the largest software provider to real estate brokers, and sold it three years ago, 2016. Recently co founded Knox Financial, which offers a frictionless way to turn a home into an investment property. They raised $1.4 million, launched a pilot in Boston, and began accepting units onto the platform based in Boston, Massachusetts. This is going to be a fun conversation. So with that being said, Dave, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure, happy to do it. I've been in the real estate tech world pretty much my entire career. As you noted, I founded a company called Boston Logic. We make software for real estate brokerages and the agents that work there, the people who help you buy, sell, and rent a home. They are the users of the software. It's actually pretty likely that most of your listeners have interacted with our software and they didn't know they were doing so because it's white labeled software. Okay. So I built that company over about a 12 year span and sold it to a $50 billion private equity firm who said, Hey, this is a great company, but you guys need more stuff. So we're going to start buying other companies. I still sell on the board of that company. It's a lot of fun. And now that company owns half a dozen software products and has clients in 60 countries and offices all over the world. So that's a fun ride. After that, I took a little time off, had a son. And last Congratulations. Year, thank you, sir. We have another one on the way. Congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Last year, along with a friend and, and former colleague, Spencer Taylor, I launched Knox Financial, which is my current day job, you might say. And at Knox, we make it incredibly easy to turn a home you own into an income property. And if you already own an income property, we make owning that property as simple as owning a share of Apple or Microsoft. So you put your home in the program. You step away, we take care of everything else. We send you a check and a statement every quarter. We send you a 1099 for your taxes at the end of the year. And other than that, you should have to do almost nothing. Really? Okay. So I got a house that I live in. I want to move to another house, but I hear about this. So I'm like, oh, you know what? I'm not going to sell my current house. I'm just going to sign up for Knox Financial. You said just now 
that I put my home in your program and then I step away, you make magic happen, and then I get money, what, every quarter, every month, and then I get some tax document at the end of the year. Is that accurate? That's pretty accurate. So let's get into a little bit more of how that happens. So you're living there today. It's time to move. Yep. And you say, you know what? This home, it's been going up in value the entire time I'm here. This neighborhood is highly desirable and that's never going to change. Why would I sell this fantastic investment? It's a common thought. Millions and millions of people have this thought every year. Mm-hmm. And we say, you're right. Don't sell it. You sign up with us. First thing you might need is you might need to do a refinancing of the home in order to afford your next home to have a down payment. Well, we have a financing arm. Next thing, you're going to need a different insurance policy because a homeowner's policy is different than the policy you need for a renter. Well, we're an insurance brokerage as well. Then you're going to need to find a renter. There's going to be maintenance needs. Somebody needs to pick up the phone on Saturday night at 11 p.m. when there's a leaky sink. We've got that function as well. You need legal and leasing and background checking. We do all that. So we find a renter. We put them in the home. We manage all the move in, move out, keys, you name it. We've taken care of it. We also do all the accounting and bookkeeping. So we collect the rent. We pay all the expenses on your behalf. We actually manage a bank account for you as a homeowner. And at the end of the quarter, every 90 days, you get just like a share of Microsoft or Apple that might pay a dividend. We send you the net profit on your home. And then the end of the year, because every single expense is run through us, we can send you a 1099 and it makes filing your taxes incredibly easy. Huh. All right. What are your fees? We work different than the ways other people work. So other folks, you might hire a property manager for somewhere between 4 and 8% or higher. Realtors right. charge you a month's rent, so they get paid for more turnover. We never thought that made sense to us. You need to have a bookkeeper and accountant, all that stuff. We charge $0.10 cents on every dollar we collect. Mm-hmm. So I don't charge to put a renter in. I don't charge for professional photography. We do professional real estate photographers in every single unit in order to get better rent. We don't charge rent collection fees. We don't do any of that. All we do is 10% of the revenue that you see is paid to Knox. Okay. So your fee is 10% on the collected income. That's right. Okay. So when I refinance with you, when I get a new insurance policy, there are no fees to do the refinance? No. The nice thing for a homeowner is that we do make money doing that, but it's not you who pays. It's the market. So banks pay for us to find the borrower. So the bank pays us or the insurance carrier pays us. So let's say we go out to the market of insurance providers and Chubb is the insurer that comes back with the best deal for you. Chubb actually pays any insurance broker for you bring them that policy. So we make money not from you, but from the market. So on the refinance, there are no fees to your customer. They are paid by the lender to you all. So the customer does not have to pay any fees. The customer does not pay a fee to us. The lending market is its own beast. So there are times as markets go up and down that there may be fees for the loan. These days, you're very unlikely to pay fees. Certain borrowers might pay PMI or something like that. But again, that's a bank and Fannie Freddie thing, not something we really control. Got it. So how many customers do you have on this platform? We launched less than 90 days ago and we've got 10 units on the platform so far. Nice. Congratulations on the launch. You got a lot of things going on, personal and professional. <laughs> launched 90 days ago and 10 units are on. I should say it's less than 80 days ago, but it's coming days. up on 90 days. <laughs> coming up on 90 days, 10 units are on. Is that your friend, your best friend and some close relative of yours, 10 units? No, it's none of that actually. They're so, your enemies. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> At the heart of what we do, we're a data and automation company, actually. So what we've done is we've looked at hundreds and hundreds of thousands of homes because I should say we're only focused right now in the greater Boston area. So okay. we've actually run larger scale models. But when we run the model in Boston, we look at a few hundred thousand homes and using the data, we've identified the actual homes that we want in our program because we know which homes should be good rental investments and which should be cash flow positive or at least break even. Based on that, we also look at the data set and say, okay, who is likely to move soon? And those are the folks that we're targeting. Mm -hmm. And we're planning to scale a very large company here. Yes, we have 10 units now, but we're brand new, right? So we plan to soon have 10 units a month and 10 units a week entering the program. And then we'll go into other markets. We'll go from Boston to, say, Atlanta and San Diego and Chicago and so on and so forth. And in order to do that, when we go into a market, we need to do so in a scalable way. And it's not all going to be our friends and family. It needs to be that we can run a marketing campaign, describe the value we deliver and have folks say, yeah, Knox is a great investment. I'm going to jump in that program. So we're launching that and figuring out how to do that in Boston first. What do you need to accomplish in order to then move into another market? That's a great question. It actually comes down to a couple of things. First of all, we need to be able to acquire customers at a certain rate for a certain customer acquisition cost. This is sort of business growth 101 if you've scaled a business in the past. So what does it cost me to acquire a customer? What do I see in revenue from that customer? And therefore, is that a scalable revenue model? One of the funniest things that's been in the news lately to go a little bit off topic here was in Lyft's S1, when they went public, they said, we're not profitable. We may never be profitable. And Uber said, we're going to need driverless cars in order to become profitable. I thought that was amazing. Like, how are you not making money every time I get into an Uber or get into a Lyft? I just couldn't believe that. So with us. Details. Uh, no one needs profit. Oh, yeah. We just need speculation. Profit, That's the foundation of our economy. <laughs> exactly. So we do not exist in that reality. I don't know how to get over there in that reality. We live in the real world. So we need to prove that in this market, we can run units in a profitable, scalable way, in, in, ideally in a very profitable way. And that's where the the automation parts of our business really shine. Mm -hmm. And again, that we can acquire customers for a reasonable amount of money. If I have to market, spend $10,000 in ad buy to acquire a customer, I'm never going to make any money. So we need to get some brand recognition out there. We need people to tell their friends and be happy about the service that we're delivering. And so forth. all of our clients are very happy. And then say, okay, we've got a foothold. We've got a few hundred units here in Boston and growing. Let's go do that in another city and then two more and then 10 more. So help us understand a little bit about how you're making money with that 10%. I imagine it's because of the infrastructure you set up one and done and maintain and enhance while you go. But the bulk of the work's up front with your software and then you rock and roll. But please, will you elaborate? Sure. So for starters, we have made certain things that are best practice standard in our product. For example, every single lease we sign includes a direct debit form for the tenant. So we automatically collect rent. We will not be chasing rent checks. That automatically deposits that rent into an account, again, separate for every unit. We don't commingle funds. And then we automatically pay all the expenses on the unit. So we've created this automated financial management system so that the money flow is taken care of. These accounts are also where maintenance costs come out of. So we have not built a construction company or a maintenance company. We have a licensed dealer, so that's the wrong term. 
we have a, a contract with uh, large maintenance providers at a rate that's far below what a homeowner could get on their own. So we don't include the maintenance costs in that 10%. If you've got a home that's in good repair, you're not going to have a lot of maintenance costs. If you don't, it might not make a good rental. And we'll tell you that. We'll be honest with you about it. But in that 10%, we're doing the financial management, not the actual work of nuts and bolts and hammers and screws on the home. In addition, we are all about keeping tenants happy. Anybody who's been a landlord knows that turnover will kill you because yeah. A, you'll have the cost of turnover and B, you have the risk of vacancy. Mm-hmm. And that is something we work very hard to eliminate. So we are treating tenants in a very different way. I'll give you an example. When you move into an Ox property, we send you a toolkit. It's a gift. It's got our logo on it. But we say to you, hey, someday you probably want to be a homeowner. If you call us and say the garbage disposal is broken, we say, hey, there's this number three Allen wrench. Go on your, your sink and just wiggle this. Put the Allen wrench in there and wiggle it. It'll be fixed. Tenants love that. So we're treating tenants in a different way and hopefully they'll stick around longer. Oh, all right. I thought you were going a different direction. You're actually saying, here's a wrench, go fix it yourself in a nicer way. What else is in the toolkit? Oh, geez. It's like a 50-piece toolkit. Uh, <laughs> get, get, uh, do, name three or four others, please. Oh, there's you know, a screwdriver. And an oh, so they're head. actually tools. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's a toolkit. So we're not telling the tenants you have to do your own maintenance. Like if they say, no, I don't want to touch that thing, we'll send somebody. You're strongly else. implying it. To some ex- but, but that's <laughs> one of many ways we're treating tenants differently. We're also, for example, we require renter's insurance on every single unit, on every single tenant. Uh-huh. Um, and we can offer that. We don't make much money on renter's insurance. It's like 15 bucks a month, right? Most of that money goes to the insurer, but we're treating tenants differently. And we're actually treating homeowners differently. When they jump in the program, they go, oh, you guys are doing all of that, like professional photography and all these other things that we do that, yeah, there's probably some property managers on the phone going, oh, we do professional photography, but they're the really rare ones. So we're, we're really sort of packaging an awful lot of best in practice. And then we're doing the bookkeeping and the accounting. And then we're making sure they're paying less in insurance and less on maintenance. You add it all up, it's a win-win. Yeah, it's a whole lot of stuff that you're doing, as any landlord knows. I imagine there has to be a certain price point of rent that you look for in order to have the home participate in your program for it to make sense for you. So what is that price point if there is one? That's a great question. We have not figured that out yet. And for that matter, we don't know if or when we might come into such a situation. The fact is we launched in a top five market. Yeah. So I'd say the lowest value of any home we've brought into our program is over $400,000. And the average home in America is worth $230,000. So we're like almost double the average American home just by being where we are. There will come a day when we will launch in some great cities that just have a lower average home value. Like We'll go into Houston someday right? Third largest MSA in the country, but the average home value is like a third of the Boston area and we'll figure out how to operate there. And I'm just curious, why are you talking about home values when you're compensated on the collected income? So in my mind, I would be thinking about the rental income. So out of the 10 homes, hey, the lowest amount of rental income we're getting is $3,000. So we're still getting that spread of 300 bucks. That's a good point. They're obviously, or maybe not, uh, I shouldn't use the word obviously, home value and rent are proportional. So they're not necessarily linearly related, Mm -hmm. but if you take a look at the ratio, and again, we built a lot of large data models. So let me paint this picture for you. Please look at the ratio of home value to 12 month rental 
income opportunity of a home or of an entire market. So let's say you take all the two-bedroom homes in Houston and you compare them to the two-bedroom homes in Boston. You take the uh-huh. average value of a home in Boston, the average value of a home in Houston, you take the average rental projected for that two-bedroom in Houston and Boston, and you get a percentage. So that percentage rate in Boston is about 6%. That percentage rate in Houston is about 12%. So your rental potential to value ratio is actually much better in Houston, mm-hmm. which is really interesting. That said, there's what insurance costs in Texas is very different. Like insurance yeah. is more expensive. So you, you can develop these models to be pretty darn intelligent, understanding where you're going to be break even or cash flow positive and what kind of profitability you can see on, on the units. But it is all somewhat indexed to value. Mm-hmm. As an entrepreneur, this is number two for you, right? Three, what was the other one? <laughs> I started a small real estate investment partnership a long, long time ago. We bought some assets and then we liquidated them. It was mostly like, you know, you buy it, you let it sit, and then you liquidate. But that was a long time ago. How long ago? We sold out in maybe it was 05 or 06. So mm-hmm. that was the end of this, that story. It was like an 03 to 05 or 06 story. It was pretty quick. It was back then when you could do that kind of thing. Yeah. You could buy and value would go up 10, 15% per year, and you could be out. And we returned 56% per year cash on cash to people mm-hmm. <laughs> before tax. And you know, you just <laughs> the, the financing terms you could get back then, right. it, that all, that's all evaporated now. You know? <laughs> would have been an interesting story if you had waited until 09 to sell. Right. No, that, that's really <laughs> funny. I'm trying to even remember the exact. For the Boston market, we were at the cusp. Things were leveling off and you just knew, give it another six, 12 months, they were going to come down. It was already getting harder to get financing when we sold. We could not have recreated day one of that deal on day final, but we yep. were able to still sell. Thank goodness. All right. So this is round three for you on ventures. What in your approach have you honed knowing that this is round three that wasn't as honed in round one and round two, which sounds like they were a tremendous success round one, round two, but you learn some stuff too along the way and you get better as you go, regardless of the outcomes. The number of things that you learn along the way are actually critical and you should have done a few years ago. And then this time we're putting in place three year month six instead of year three, year six is enormous. Putting in the right marketing software, putting in the right CRM, putting in the right accounting software, mechanizing any part of the business process you can to make it simpler and more repeatable and accurate. All that. What CRM do you recommend? Salesforce all day long. How come? Well, with Salesforce, if you're a relatively technical person, and I don't mean like you have to be a coder. I'm not personally a coder, by the way. Mm-hmm. But if you have an attitude of like, hey, I'll get into something and I'll figure it out. Not enough clicking and button pressing, I'll figure just about anything out. And you know, if you're an entrepreneur, you're probably that type of person. You can get so much done with Salesforce. So that's bullet one. Bullet two, it'll scale with you to whatever size you want to be. And third, it connects to everything. So we've got Salesforce connected to HubSpot, which is our marketing automation system. It's connected to DocuSign, which is how we do all of our contracts electronically. DocuSign has saved my butt more times than I can count or just saved me thousands of hours of my life. Yes. I will use Adobe Sign, but either one. Yeah. So one of the cool things here is that DocuSign will actually take information out of Salesforce and fill it into fields for you if you do the integration correctly. So it accelerates that. We're connecting, we haven't done it yet, but DocuSign to NetSuite, which is owned by Oracle, great accounting package and, and GL package. You need to have a third-party middleware company to, to connect them, but we're doing that. So Salesforce becomes the hub for your data. It's not just a CRM. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think it's really great. If I was more strapped for cash than I am, 
I might be using the out-of-the-box CRM in HubSpot because I was going to use HubSpot anyway and it comes with it. There's a lot of decent CRMs out there. Even NetSuite comes to the CRM. So technically we have access to three of them, which is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. That's good. I'm glad you talked about that. Just interesting to hear your perspective. All right. What's your best real estate investing advice ever based on your eclectic experience as a real estate entrepreneur? You know, it's funny. I just contributed to an article for Forbes. They asked a similar question. Their question was, how do you maximize value in a home? So this is sort of the top of mind answer. If you look at property and there's a way to add bedrooms, do it. This could be like, you've got a house you're buying and you're going to rent it out. I once turned a two bed into a four bed when I bought it. I'm actually in the process of turning a one bed into a two bed that I just bought recently. Mm -hmm. And it's usually not that much money to put up a wall in a closet. You could do it on a weekend if you're handy. You could do it for a couple grand if, you're, if you hire a contractor or a few grand. Maybe you need to put in another light switch or something. So maybe it's five grand if you went really crazy. You need and the rent you'll see is just dramatically greater. And if you're looking at a large multifamily, look at every unit and go, okay, what's my total number of bedrooms here? Can I squeeze 10%, 20%, 50% more bedrooms out of this property? And suddenly you're renting better. In today's market, people are worried in rentals anyway, less about square footage total. They're worried more about how many people can I kind of squeeze into this house mm. and that, that'll get you better returns. And the thing I enjoy about this conversation is you're coming at this from an investing standpoint, but also from a data standpoint, right? So I, I imagine you've taken a look at the data and that's what it's also shown you. Oh yeah. Let me give you an example. So one of my favorite places to look at data is short-term rentals actually. So one of my rental properties is only short-term rentals, Airbnb and VRBO, okay? If you happen to own one, or even if you don't, search in your own neighborhood for one bedroom rentals on those platforms, and then go and look and search for five or six or seven bedroom rentals. And you'll find there's dramatically more competition when there's fewer bedrooms. Again, you paid the same amount for the house. It's got the same amount of square footage. It costs the same amount to heat. The bills are the same. Still got to plow the driveway. That costs the same, right? All your other costs are the same. One more bedroom, revenue goes up. So the minute you buy it, invest in putting in that extra bedroom for the lifetime that you own it, you're making more money. That's something to think about for every landlord. Thank you for that tip. And again, I really like it coming because it's coming from your analysis of data in addition to your firsthand experience. All right, we're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Let's do it. All right. First quick word from our best ever partners. Best ever listeners, go to BEC20.com. Look in the top left-hand corner. You can earn 15% as an affiliate. You can join the affiliate program and participate in the conference that way and basically earn a free ticket to the conference, BEC20.com. The Corporate Investor Podcast is geared towards successful corporate employees with high-income jobs looking to create a second stream of income. You'll hear from successful real estate investors on the show as they describe how they got started investing while working their full-time corporate job. Listen and subscribe at thecorporateinvestor.com. That's thecorporateinvestor.com. Okay, best ever book you've recently read? Best ever book I've recently read. I recently read an amazing book, Hillbilly Elegy. What's amazing about that book to me is it's an economic look at what happened to the Midwest, I don't even know if Midwest is right, sort of like the Tennessee Valley and the Ozark, that whole area, basically in the last century. And what it's meant for the economic outcomes for several generations of people and how they migrated for work and how populations have shifted. 
what that's meant for housing. I mean, there's a bunch of real estate in that and what it meant for the author because it's a memoir. So awesome book. It's not a lot about real estate investing, honestly, but it is an amazing book. I think the best book on technology that I've read in the last five years is The Innovators by Walter Isaacson. It's a 200-year history of the computer and electronics industry starting in 1800. Oh. And Isaacson's the guy who wrote the Jobs biography, the Einstein biography, the Franklin biography, and they're amazing. What's the best ever way you like to give back to the community? I was the president of my neighborhood association for a while, and I found that incredibly rewarding because it wasn't just the community at large. It was literally my neighbors within a, a few blocks radius. And it was great to be volunteering and helping out, but it was also great to build those relationships. How can the best ever listeners learn more about what you got going on? Check us out at knoxfinancial.com. That's K-N-O-X financial.com. And we will include that in the show notes. Dave, enjoyed our conversation learning about Knox Financial, learning about your business model, how you arrived at that thought process, what the value exchange is, talking a little bit about the services within it, and then also taking a step back mindset as well as the ventures that you had prior to this and how that's led to some certain enhancements and how you approach your next venture. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day. We'll talk to you again soon. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. The Corporate Investor Podcast is geared towards successful corporate employees with high-income jobs looking to create a second stream of income. You'll hear from successful real estate investors on the show as they describe how they got started investing while working their full-time corporate job. Listen and subscribe at thecorporateinvestor.com. That's thecorporateinvestor.com.